Good morning. Last week I referenced uh, Socrates uh, when he said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And so this morning I want to kind of pick up and continue that theme as we look through the Sermon on the Mountain and look at how do we grow in, in self-awareness and, and why do we do the things that we do. Uh, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels, one of my favorite Jesus stories is the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, and the rich young ruler is this guy that came to Jesus and it looked like he had everything. Uh, he had wealth, he had his youth, he had power and influence. But when he came to Jesus, it was clear that he was still longing for something more. Maybe he was disappointed with how he was experiencing life. And he came to Jesus asking, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And the Gospel of Mark records this conversation in a really special way. So I want us to look at Mark and just kind of see how this conversation unfolds with Jesus and the rich young ruler. And so the Gospel of Mark, it says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And one thing I want us to notice in the Gospel of Mark, as Mark records this story, is it says that Jesus looked on him and he loved him. He felt compassion for him. And so when Jesus says to him, hey, there's one area in which you're lacking. You lack one thing. He's not saying that out of out of anger or arrogance or judgment or condemnation, he's saying it out of love. It says that Jesus loved him and then spoke this truth into his life, that you are lacking in this one area. In fact, at the end of this this sentence, Jesus invites him. He says, come and follow me. And this is an invitation. This is kind of the, the common saying for a rabbi to invite a disciple to become a part of this discipleship journey. So in this conversation, Jesus isn't condemning him. Jesus isn't rejecting him. He's actually inviting him. And in love, he's trying to, to raise awareness to, to what's the hang-up for this guy flourishing and experiencing the life that God has for him. And sometimes I think when we look at the story, we tend to think it's primarily about money. Um, and the question we kind of go to, well, is this the expectation that Jesus has for everybody that's rich? Does Jesus, does Jesus want everyone that's rich to give all their possessions away? And I think if we ask that question look at it from that lens, we kind of miss out on what's really going on here. And this story is less about money and more about greed. Jesus is speaking truth into this guy's life because he wants to raise awareness to the thing that's, that's keeping him from, from seeing God and experiencing God fully and loving his neighbors well. We'll unpack that a little bit as we go on today. But he wanted to make him aware of what was holding him back. And so this morning as we talk about self-awareness, uh, I want to be clear that self-awareness, and Jesus is trying to bring self-awareness to this guy, that self-awareness is not the same thing as self-absorption. It's not just thinking about yourself more and more because I think we have a tendency to do that pretty well already. Self-awareness isn't about self-importance. It's not really about self-improvement. It's not even really about self-help. It's just about learning how to see yourself clearly as you are. It's not about how awesome you are, and it's not about even how terrible you are. It's about seeing yourself more clearly so that you can see God more clearly and so that you can love others more fully. I want to unpack that a little bit. These are two points, and I just want to say it again. Self-awareness is is about seeing yourself more clearly so that you can see God more clearly and love others more fully. Now the first part, um, seeing God more clearly. We have a tendency in our lives to create and fashion gods that look just a little bit better than us. They're like flattering versions of ourselves. For example, when Jesus was talking to the crowd here in the story with the rich young ruler, this crowd had this basic assumption about God that, that God blessed people with wealth if he loved them. And so they valued wealth. Uh, they looked at this guy and said, he must be blessed by God. They fashioned a God that valued wealth um, because they valued wealth. 
And so when Jesus comes on the scene here and he says, actually, if you want to, to really draw close to God, give your wealth away, he's completely flipping their theology on its head. He's kind of blowing it out of the water. He's exposing how they've created a God that's actually smaller and inaccurate. And, and when we learn to see ourselves more clearly, and when we learn to see the things that are holding us back from, uh, from loving others fully, from seeing God clearly, we begin to see these distinctions between who we are and who God actually is in his fullness. Because we have a tendency to make God smaller uh, and a flattering version of ourselves. We, we, we tend to make a God that, that agrees with us on all the things that we value so we can justify our actions and our words and our, our, our attitudes. Jesus flips it on its head. And Augustine says it like this in his book, Confessions. He says, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? How can you see God clearly if you can't even see yourself clearly? Now, John Calvin, in his book, The Institutes, uh, starts off the Institutes like this. He says, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. So self-awareness is learning to see yourself clearly so that you begin to recognize the parts of the God that you've made that are more about you than about God. And you can see a distinction there. And also so that you can love others more fully. Now, when Jesus came to him and said that you lack one thing, take your possessions and sell them and give them to the poor. Now, Jesus isn't like, hey, sell your stuff and give it to me. It's not a self-serving command. He's saying give your stuff away to the poor because for this man, this man's greed was keeping him from connecting and, and loving and building, being in intimate relationships and fulfilling relationships with other people because the way that greed kind of works is um, you have this stuff and you think your value is based on this stuff and you don't want to really give it away because that's where your value is from. And so when you're greedy, you find your identity in, in that wealth that you kind of withhold it and it prevents you from connecting fully with other people. Um, in fact, you may even begin to look down on them because of that greed. So when Jesus tells him, you lack one thing, sell all you have and, and give it to the poor and come and follow me. He's trying to raise awareness of how greed is holding this guy back in life and not allowing him to be, to be in uh, relationship with God and relationship with others. Now, for some of us, greed might be the thing that's, that's kind of this, this blind spot that, that prevents that, but uh, we all have different things as well that, that, that prevent us from seeing God and from loving others fully. And Jesus' invitation is to follow him and to begin to see ourselves more clearly. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, one of, one of Jesus' most famous passages is kind of like this. And Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your, in your eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the question we're going to ask this morning is, how in the world do we take the speck out of our own eye? What does that work look like? What does that process look like? One thing I want to point out when Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7 is he doesn't say that we're never to, take, uh, to help take the speck out of our brother's and sister's eyes. In fact, next week's sermon is basically going to be called, How to Judge People. And, yeah, Brian, I like that delayed laugh, man. <laughs> yeah, that was a joke. Um, so, Jesus doesn't say that we should never point out the speck in our brother's or sister's eye or, or, or work on helping them with that. But he says the first thing you have to do is take the, the plank, take the speck out of your own eye. And when we begin to do that kind of work, and that kind of work takes years of intentionality and, and, and work, and as we begin to do the work of taking the plank out of our own eyes, 
We grow in maturity, we grow in wisdom, we grow in humility, we grow in compassion, we grow in empathy, and it completely changes the way that we view other people because when we begin, when we begin to see the things in our lives that, that, are, that are broken and that are, that are unhealthy and that are harmful, and we begin to work on, on dealing with those, we begin to have a lot more patience with the people around us and their shortcomings as well. So Jesus doesn't say never address the speck in your brother's eye, but he says before you even think to do that, you better begin to, the work of self-awareness because uh, when we lack self-awareness, we basically are completely oblivious to how our words and our actions and our um, impact other people. We, we, we constantly go around kind of wounding people and wounding ourselves and we're just oblivious to that. We don't know how we're doing it. We may not even care how we're doing it, but ultimately self-ignorance or lack of self-awareness leads us to constantly wound other people with our garbage and also, also constantly wound ourselves. So that's what a person that lack self-awareness is constantly doing. And so the question for this morning is, what are symptoms, what are signs, how do we know areas of self-ignorance? How do we come to recognize our blind spots? Because they're called blind spots for a reason, we can't see them. How do we do that? And I just want to bring a few things out from the text that I think will help us out. The first thing I would say is, one way that we can know that that an area is a blind spot or an area of self-ignorance is that we're constantly avoiding it. All the way Jesus says this, he says, how do you not see this? How do you not see the plank that is in your eye? You're going around wounding people and, and judging people and all that stuff, but how do you not see this? Well, because we don't want to. We choose not to. Uh, we, we want to avoid things that, 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 that raise awareness about our brokenness and the darkness in our souls. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they ran and they hid because they didn't want to have the conversation. They didn't want to come face to face with God after what they had done. They hid from it. Now, David Benner, as a psychologist, he says it like this. He says, it is the things in ourselves that we refuse to face that have the greatest potential to tyrannize us. So one way that we maintain self-ignorance, one way that we continue to have these blind spots is that we completely avoid the things that might raise awareness, the conversations or uh, the, the, the situations. We just kind of run from them and we hide. Adam and Eve hid in the garden to, to avoid the consequences and the admission of their sin. And we've been hiding ever since. In some ways that we do that, sometimes we just distract ourselves with, with stupid stuff that's, that basically allows us to procrastinate and procrastinate and procrastinate on things that are actually important. Our focus tends to, to, to go towards things that are, that are minute and not important as a distraction to avoid us dealing with the things that are really significant. I was in a conversation with a friend last week and she said for the past stretch, she's been really struggling with anxiety and just being aware of this anxiety um, in her life. And, and she likened it to, she's like, you know what, we, we found out that we have mice in our house. And I think I'm just anxious about these, these mice in our house and, and trying to get rid of them. And she said, but as I stood, stood back and began to reflect a little bit more deeply about this anxiety, I realized that there were some really significant things happening in my life, that there were children that were changing their stages of life. They were going from junior high to high school. Um, and so there's these major family dynamics that are beginning to change. And she said, I began to realize that when I took a step back and just looked at it, that really the source of my anxiety wasn't the mice. It was these family dynamics that were, that were changing. So many times we want to kind of focus on the small things and, and avoid being present and aware and, and, focus and, and dealing with the really significant things and just being, being aware of that, being present, that grieving that or, or dealing with it. My wife is an avid reader. She's reading like eight books at a time. It's just crazy how many books she reads. And I would guess that maybe 10% of the books that she reads are um, books on parenting. We have, we have uh, a lot of children, and we were trying to do this thing well. And, 
And so usually when she reads these books, she'll sit down with me and she'll debrief, like, here's the things I'm learning from this book. One thing I recognized over a period of a year is that every time we kind of got to these books about parenting, I began to tighten up and stiffen up. And I was like, I don't want to talk about this. And she's just saying, hey, this is what the book's saying in general about all of us and how we can improve. But I took it kind of personally, like, that she was coming at me with, this is how you were not measuring up as a father. Not what she was doing at all, but that's what I was feeling. There was a defensiveness, and I wanted to avoid the conversation because I didn't have this huge insecurity about being a bad father. And what's ironic is that if there's any time any conversation that might imply that I'm not doing a great job as a father, I want to avoid it. And the irony of that is that when I avoid the conversations about how I can improve as a father, I am cementing the fact that I'm not going to be a good one. When I avoid the conversations that might actually help me improve, I'm guaranteeing that I'm not going to grow and improve as a father. I'm kind of dooming myself here. Um, the things that we fear, the way that we respond to that fear tends to make a huge impact in our lives um, and almost becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. When we don't confront the things that we fear, we create the results or the consequences um, that we fear to begin with. Uh, so one way that we can know that we have these blind spots is just that we're seeking to avoid the conversation altogether. We're seeking to avoid the situation altogether. We're tuning it out. We're watching 10 hours of Netflix. We're, we're focusing maybe on the, on the mice in the house and not, not the real home dynamics. So as we kind of, the first point here is how do we learn to recognize blind spots? The first thing is just how do you, what, what are you avoiding right now? I'm going to have a few reflection questions just to kind of process that. But what are some areas of your life where you find yourself being really defensive conversation pops up and you shut down. You change the subject. You check out. What are some conversations or areas that you're constantly seeking to avoid or move on from? And then lastly, what are you choosing not to see? Jesus says that how do you not see this? Everyone else sees it. How do you not see it? Because we hide from it. We avoid it. We choose sometimes to be ignorant on these issues. So avoiding is one way that we can kind of zero in with the radar. Where are the blind spots? What am I trying to avoid? Uh, the second way that we can recognize maybe some of our blind spots or our self-ignorance is blaming. Now Jesus kind of goes on to say, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye? He starts off, how do you not see this? And how do you see this? It's so obvious from a, from a third, third person perspective what's going on here. How do you how do you see this? And we have a tendency to constantly blame other people when, when there's tension or, or failures or frustrations. Now, Adam and Eve, when they got caught in the Garden of Eden with their sin, immediately began to blame someone else. So Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the snake. They avoided their, their own responsibility. And, and it actually prevented them from growth. Now, why did you choose to eat from the, the tree? What really was going on there? What was lacking uh, in your life that, that made you want to do that? What was the longing um, in your life that, that made you want to do that? And rather than deal and, and own uh, their responsibility, they just blamed and we've been doing the same thing ever since. And whenever we scapegoat someone else uh, for the situation, we're completely preventing ourselves from growing in self-awareness and growing in, and flourishing. Now, uh, probably a year, a little over a year ago, there was some major tension on staff and disagreements and arguments. And I remember I called a friend of mine, a mentor, and I just began to gripe <laughs> and vent. And about 30 minutes into my vent session, he stopped me and he said, Tommy, I just want to know, how are you contributing to this problem? I can't really say what I said next, because we're in church. <laughs> I can just say it was a stream of profanities aimed in his general direction. And I said, dude, I don't think you've been listening well. <laughs> like, 
I don't think you heard me right. It's clearly these other guys' faults. But as I sat with that for a while and as I began to reflect, oh, no, it really didn't even take long. It took about 30 seconds. I was like, oh, here's how I'm not, not only not making the situation better, I might actually be making it worse in these ways. When we're in this situation of brokenness or disappointment or tension or frustration and all we do is gripe and moan about the other people and blame them for, for what's going on, we're completely missing an opportunity to grow ourselves. When we blame other people and don't take any ownership or responsibility uh, ourselves, we're preventing growth. I want to make a disclaimer here. I don't mean that in, if you're in an abusive relationship that's verbally abusive, physically abusive, in, any type of abuse, this point does not apply, Okay. <laughs> My encouragement to you is to get out and then deal with it. I'm not saying that if you're in that kind of situation that you should be constantly blaming yourself. And I'm not saying in general that you should over-own stuff either. But when we blame other people and don't take any responsibility for how we're contributing to the situation, um, that's a pretty clear indication that we're ignorant about ourselves and how we're showing up to the, to the room. So reflection question for this point. The first thing is we avoid. Secondly, we blame. And just some questions for blaming are... What is an area of my life where I'm constantly frustrated, but also constantly blaming someone else for, for it? And then how might I also be contributing to the problem? So when we're self-ignorant, when we lack self-awareness, we avoid, we blame, and then lastly, we, we mask. We put on mask. And Jesus says here, you hypocrite. And last week we, we discussed this idea that hypocrisy, that a hypocrite is someone who puts on a mask and outwardly projects something um, that's different than what's going on internally. Now when Adam and Eve sin in the garden, they, they, they take fig leaves and they cover themselves. They put on a mask, they put on a covering um, to disguise the shame and the pain and the vulnerability that's going on. And once again, we've been doing the same thing ever since. This is what Thomas Merton calls the false self. Now, the false self is kind of this persona that we learn from childhood, some, some way that we learn to cope with disappointment, some way that we learn to, um, to get what we want and avoid what we don't want, this false self. And, and there's a distinction here between maybe a persona. Now, a persona is, is what you want other people to think about you. So that's the mask that you project outwardly. So that's your persona, but also you have your identity, which is how you view yourself. So persona is how you want other people to view you. And your identity is how you view yourself. And both of these can be lies. You can become way off track on both areas. In fact, oftentimes our identity is, um, of shame or, or insecurity kind of drives the persona that we're trying to project. Now David Benner says it like this. He says, while this might seem quite benign, the dark side of pretending is that what begins as a role, uh, a persona, becomes an identity. Initially, the masks we adopt reflect how we want others to see us. Over time, however, they come to reflect how we want to see ourselves. We have become a house of smoke and mirrors. So somewhere growing up, we learn how to project this persona that gets us what we want and gets us out of trouble or pain or disappointment. But somewhere along the way, that becomes muddled up with how we begin to see ourselves, and we become attached to that specific identity. The thing that we think brings us value or popularity or recognition. Now for the rich young ruler, let's go back to that story. Somewhere along the way, the rich young ruler was told, if you're wealthy, people will respect you. If you're wealthy, you will be valued and admired and, and safe and powerful. And that part, that, that story that he was told growing up uh, became a part of his identity and he began to defend it. And so when Jesus says, give, uh, give all your possessions away, he's basically saying, 
discard your persona. Discard this false self that's really preventing you from connection. So what's happened when the, when the rich young ruler is told, hey, your wealth defines you. And, maybe, and, and when people think that you're wealthy, they're going to value you. What begins to happen is you begin to cut corners. Maybe, maybe he loses some wealth over time, but he wants to cover that up. He doesn't want people to know that because he's ashamed of it. Because his value is tied to his wealth. So he cuts corners. He lies. Um, he begins to be more and more stingy and, and, and angry and, and really defensive around the area of wealth. Now, for, for us, as I mentioned earlier, it might not be this idea of wealth, but we have all sorts of different masks that we wear. Maybe sometime growing up, you learned that if you were funny, people liked you. That if you could make a joke in a moment of tension, the tension went away. And that you could use humor as a way to kind of get out of difficult situations and to keep people uh, valuing you. So your identity became humor. Maybe somewhere along the way, we just learned how to be really nice. And if you're constantly nice to people, then they like you. Um, but what happens along in, in that moment when you're, when you're just nice all the time is that you begin to, to lose your own opinion and your own self. You're just accommodating to everyone else. Uh, now with humor, there may be moments where you don't need to make a joke or where you make a joke in the wrong moment in a fight and it really ticks the other person off and, and, and escalates the situation. Um, maybe for some of you guys, it's, it's the ability to, to appear competent, um, that you know your stuff and that if, if anyone ever exposes ignorance or shows that you're incompetent, you flare up and get defensive and you lash out because that's this identity that you've latched onto. Maybe it's your ambitious and you're successful. Maybe it's the ability to remain calm in difficult situations. Um, and none of these things are innately bad. It's not bad to be fun. It's not bad to be nice. It's not bad to be ambitious or, or wealthy. Um, these aren't bad things, but when they become so ingrained in our identity that they become our entire identity, when they become idols, there's a lot of danger there. And we project this false self because what happens is we want to maintain that front but there's something else going on behind the scenes. And we use humor to mask our disappointment. We use wealth to, to, to mask um, our insecurity, whatever it might be. Um, this idea of projecting the false self creates a disconnect because you can't be honest with God, you can't be honest with other people, and you can't even be honest with yourself. It creates this disconnect. Chris uh, texted me yesterday. He was playing soccer with some friends, and he's like, Man, my back is really jacked up. I'm like, oh, yeah, why is, your, why is your back jacked up? And he said, well, six months ago, I injured my hip. I kept playing soccer. But to compensate for the hip, I had to run different ways, and then I rolled both my ankles because <laughs> my hip wasn't working right. But then to overcompensate for that, I'd run differently, and now my back's jacked up. Sometimes we, we have a tendency to overcompensate in our strengths to make up for our weaknesses, but ultimately it breaks down. Landon and I, five, four or five years ago, we were running half marathons. We finally talked ourselves into a full marathon, and that's just the worst. Just stupid. So we got to about mile 17, and I just wanted to die. And what happens when you get to like, you guys may have different distances. It might be like 50 yards for you or something, but, or 50 miles. I'm not trying to, whatever. Okay. I was terrible at the marathon. Okay, I'm just going to go there. But about mile 17, like my left calf starts to cramp. And I'm like, oh, man, this isn't good. So I start hopping over here. And all of a sudden, like my right quad tightens up. I'm like, okay, now, now I'm really in trouble. It's like both legs, you need them both for, to run, to stand up, whatever. And so then I switch over to something. And then it's like about mile 19, everything falls apart. 
Everything hurts. I can't fake it anymore. I'm just devastated. And this you know, seven-year-old man that I passed a few miles earlier is just breezing by me. And I'm just <laughs> hurting. We all have strengths. Maybe it's your right quad. You know, it's a metaphor, right? <laughs> it's a metaphor. Uh, and when something else begins to, to weaken or there's, a, there's, a piece, there's something that's just not working somewhere else, you compensate by going back to your strength, but eventually that strength is going to break down and you're going to be broken down. And when we cling to our strategies, they don't work long term. They actually continue to create the things that we fear. Um, when we overcompensate, there's, there's just a lot of danger there. We try to project a certain image of ourselves, but in certain times of, of hardship, they don't hold up. So I want to ask a few questions about masking. How do you want people to perceive you? How has that worked for you in the past? And are there areas where it is getting you in trouble now? Another thing that I think this, is, this isn't on the list, but I think that'd be really powerful for you guys to do is to find a few good friends that you really trust to bring honest and hard feedback and give them permission to speak freely and just ask them, how do you experience me? What's it like to be in a relationship with me? And say, I want you to be brutally honest and kind. <laughs> Have some kindness in there too. I've gone through Barnabas training for a few years now, and these, one of the exercises was to do this thing I just said. And I remember asking, asking Nicole Farr and asked Landon Elliott kind of these questions, and I remember the feedback that I got from them being such a gift um, and helping me understand how I come across to other people and the things that might be keeping me from, from loving well and from connecting with people. It's just such a gift. I also encourage all of you to, to go through Barnabas training and to, to look up what they do in Richmond. It's powerful work. It's a great journey towards self-awareness. So how do we recognize blind spots in our life? We tend to avoid areas of brokenness. We tend to blame other people to deflect and distract from that. We also tend to wear masks to cover up those things as well. Um, I'll kind of close with this idea. Ian Crone uh, is a guy that's made the Enneagram really popular in the past few years. And the Enneagram itself is a really great tool for self-awareness. It can really mess you up if you don't use it well, but it's a great tool. That's not really the point here. Ian Crone says there's a distinction between self-knowledge and self-awareness. So self-knowledge is basically what it sounds like. It's just kind of knowing these things about you um, that, that tend to get in the way of you loving God and seeing God fully and loving others fully. So self-knowledge is simply the knowledge of the thing, but that's not really enough. You know, self-knowledge can be used to continue to justify harmful behavior. Like you can say something really mean and say, honey, but you know I'm just a jerk. <laughs> like that's what, I just said it because I'm a jerk. You know I'm a jerk. That doesn't work in relationship. I've tried it. Like... It's not enough to know your weaknesses and then to use those weaknesses to justify your behavior. That's not an apology, right? It's just another form of pride. It's just another form of doubling down. So self-knowledge isn't enough, but self-knowledge is just knowing about yourself. But self-awareness is the ability to take that self-knowledge and to use it in real time. I almost picture it like the matrix. Like time slows down and you can just see what's going on in yourself and begin to change how you act. So the key for, for self-awareness is learning how to notice in yourself when you want to run and hide. Noticing when you want to accuse and blame. Noticing when you want to double down on your 
persona. I think one of the personas I try to project is a person that can just take the worst of the worst and not flinch. I want to be perceived as calm and strong. And there's times when I'm in a conversation with someone and they're saying something, and inside, I know, I do not agree with the word that they're saying. But outside, I'm just going, yeah. And what that means really is, I understand what you're saying, but what it comes across is, I agree with what they're saying. And as I've grown in self-awareness, I begin to recognize those moments where I'm going, yeah, on the, on the outside, I'm going, what in the world on the inside? And learning that there's a disconnect, that there's some tension that I'm wanting to avoid, so I'm not going to come across as... Um, controversial or conflicting or give pushback. I want to avoid the tension, so I'm just going to be over-accommodating. But that costs me stuff in the long run. It costs me the ability to be honest. It costs me the ability to be fully present. Um, it costs me the ability to be in deeper relationship because even though outward I'm doing this, inward I'm doing this, and inside I'm doing this, I know I'm not going to be a friend with that person because I don't feel like I can be honest with them. I'm just kind of disconnected from it. So noticing when you want to run uh, or hide, accuse or blame or dig in with your persona, and notice it, and then be curious about that. Like, what's really going on? Um, and then choose a different path. Now, Epictetus, he's a Stoic philosopher. He's one of my favorite guys, one of my favorite thinkers. He says this. He says, don't let the force of an impression, when it first hits you, knock you off your feet. Just say to it, hold on a moment. Let me see who you are and what you represent. Let me put you to the test. So when something happens, when a situation occurs, and you notice yourself kind of tightening up, getting angry, getting defensive, wanting to run, just saying, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? I have this impression or this perception of what's being said or what's being done. And let me take a moment to really check myself and see what's going on internally. My friend Dan Tocini says it like this. He says, sometimes the speck in your brother's eye is merely a reflection of the log in your own. Sometimes the speck in your brother's eye is merely a reflection of the log that's in your own meaning that when someone else irritates us, it's really more about us than about them. When a situation really gets us worked up, it might be more about us than the situation and learning to, to kind of diagnose that. Viktor Frankl says it like this. He says, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. So Jesus is inviting us to a journey to, to follow him but a part of that journey is him lovingly raising, hey, here's some areas in your life that are major blind spots where you're constantly missing yourself. You're, you're, you're constantly not connecting with me, with, with others, with yourself. And Jesus is inviting us to this journey to be aware. Now, I want to encourage you guys. This can seem like a pretty, like, how do I judge myself? Um, you know, our voices and our own inner critics are, are really strong. So I'm not just kind of saying, here's how you can be a really good inner critic in a mean way or a blaming way. In fact, I think this journey, as you begin to learn more about yourself, actually you end up kind of laughing at yourself and taking yourself a little maybe less seriously. Um, so self-awareness isn't about how, learning how terrible you are or learning how awesome you are. It's just kind of learning how you are. And the reason this is so important to be paired with the Christian journey is that we, we know that we have a God and, and, and Jesus who knows all these things about us way more than we do and still loves us. And he offers us a safe place, a place of grace and kindness and compassion to begin that journey. So I just encourage you guys, my prayer for you guys this morning is that you be willing to take a look at yourself and, and, and examine where these blind spots are um, and have grace for yourself. That, that you look at the call of Jesus 
as a loving invitation into growing so that you can see yourself more clearly, so that you can see God more clearly, and so that you can love others more fully. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the great leadership of Jesus and how he just sometimes rips the Band-Aid off and says, here is where you're lacking. But that these areas don't have to define us and that these areas aren't our entire identity. These shortcomings, these places of brokenness aren't our entire identity, but our identity is secure in Christ, that he knows us and he loves us. And I pray this morning we would rest in those two truths, that he knows us more than anyone and loves us even more. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.